Well, as Daniel mentioned, if you're a guest with us today, we are midway through a study of the Gospel of Matthew. It's uh, written by a man named Matthew. It's one of the four kind of biographies in the New Testament about Jesus. And we are studying it this year with the hope that we will, together as a church family, draw near to Jesus, our good and mighty King, in ways that we never have before. We're going to know Him better worship Him better, and follow Him more closely as a result of this time of study together in the Gospel of Matthew. And we are midway through chapter 17, if you want to open your Bibles up there. Last week, in the first part of chapter 17, we followed Jesus and three of the disciples, um, Peter, James, and John, up to the top of a mountain where they, they witnessed a really extraordinary experience. Jesus was... Um, illumined, transfigured is the word we used. He, he morphed in front of them such that he himself was as bright as lightning, they said. And his clothes were more radiant than your mama could bleach them. It's right there in the text. You can look it up. Um, so they have this remarkable mountaintop experience. I wouldn't be surprised if that's where the phrase comes from, a mountaintop experience. But like all mountaintop experiences, they have to come back down. And that's what happens this week. As they come down from that experience, as they get down the mountain, they find two things that have been almost inescapable for these disciples in recent, uh, recent months with Jesus. One is crowds, and two is debates. Now this account we're going to look at today is told in three of these Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all recount it. And Mark sheds some really insightful uh, details. And so we'll look there first in Mark chapter 9. When they came to the disciples, they're coming down that mountain. They saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, were greatly amazed, ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? So we have a great crowd gathered and a debate going on between the scribes, who were essentially the Bible scholars of the day, and the remaining nine disciples. And Matthew, in chapter 17, picks the conversation up here. He says, When they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic and he suffers terribly. Often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples. And they could not heal him. The debate centers around a father's request for his son. Luke tells us it's his only son who is suffering terribly and is involved in some incredibly self-destructive seizures. Falling, it seems intentionally almost, into fire and into water, it says. And Mark brings again some more details in the account that he records his account reads like this. Someone from the crowd answered Jesus, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. The disciples couldn't heal the boy. They weren't able and so now the father is begging Jesus for the healing of his only son who is suffering so incredibly. Let me just step as an aside for a moment and say 
that we would not want to say based on this text that what we would call epilepsy in our day is necessarily or even likely an overt demonic uh, situation going on. I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't want you to say that. But what I would say based on stories and accounts like this is that when someone falls into overtly self-destructive behaviors, whether they are harming their body or starving themselves or whatever kind of substance abuse is available today, those kinds of things very often do involve demonic influence. And for you as someone who is a caregiver for those people who loves them and cares about them, you ought to make sure that prayer is an essential part of their healing and recovery from whatever they're involved with. To fail to do that, as we're going to see, is likely to end up very, very frustrated and a futile attempt at, at a full healing of people who are involved in these kinds of practices and behaviors. Now, the other thing is that some of you here today in this room are are quite possibly involved in some of these behaviors secretly. You are involved in self-destructive practices that no one, maybe no one knows about. And I just want you to see where it leads, where it comes from, okay? You don't want to go down that road. I want you to know that you are loved. You're cared for by the Father. He has not abandoned you. There's hope in Him, and we as His people want to bring that hope to you. Don't go down that road. The one that you're dabbling in, the one that you're messing with that maybe nobody even knows about. Well, this is a situation Jesus walks into. How do you think Jesus will respond? Well, the answer now after halfway through Matthew is probably not like we expect. Jesus does not do what we expect him to do. And he doesn't hear. Jesus gets frustrated. It's an interesting idea. Jesus gets frustrated. Parents, you may be more Christ-like than you thought. Okay? Um, Look at verse 17. Jesus answers, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Jesus is obviously weary of their lack of faith, their twisted up beliefs. He is, Jesus is tired of them. He's tired of them. Who exactly is he tired of? Who's the them in that statement? You know, it could be those scribes. Here you've got Bible scholars who ought to know who Jesus is and what he's about, and they're opposing him at every turn. Could be them. But it could just as well be disciples, his own hand-picked disciples, guys he's trained, guys he sent out on mission to do this kind of stuff, and here they are without enough faith to do it. And so Jesus settles the argument with compassionate action. He calls the boy to him. Verse 18, Jesus rebuked the demon. It came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Matthew just puts it, bang, bang. Jesus rebukes the demon. 
The boy is, he comes out of him. The boy's healed instantly. Okay. That's authority. In Jesus' presence, as we read through these kinds of gospel accounts, demons beg for mercy. They declare his praise. They do his bidding. Jesus' authority in the spiritual realm is unquestioned. Okay. They do what he says. But the question that is on the table is, why were the disciples so inept and ineffective? Um, it's the disciples themselves who have that question. When the disciples came to Jesus privately in verse 19, they say to him, why could we not cast it out? You got nine disciples, you got one suffering boy, and they're unable to do anything about it. And I, I, I can't help but imagine this is what the scribes were rubbing in their face. So you say the name of Jesus has authority, right? Really? Really? This is all you got? And the disciples are, they're embarrassed. Now they're, they're absolutely bumfuzzled by this. Uh, they'd been taught by Jesus, they'd been trained, they'd been commissioned, and they'd been sent out to do this very thing. Remember, just a few pages back in your Bible, Matthew chapter 10, Jesus calls his 12 disciples, same guys. He gives them what? Authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. So they have training, they have experience, they have authority given to them by God, and they have failure. Okay. What, what, is up, what is up with that? It's like, it's like your team is a three-touchdown favorite, and they go out and they get whooped. The disciples now come back and they want to watch film. They're like, where did that go bad? This was not what was supposed to happen. Okay. And Jesus tells them in what in their, in their language is just one word. It says little faith. He said to them, because of your little faith. Um, at first blush, it sounds like the solution would be get more faith, right? Um, until you read what Jesus prescribes for this. And then it makes you kind of wonder about that idea. Because Jesus said to them, it's because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there. And it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. So it's interesting to notice what Jesus doesn't prescribe. He doesn't say, look guys, if you're going to move mountains, you need mountain-sized faith. Okay? Get, get you some big old faith to move mountains like helping this boy and his dad. It's not what Jesus says. He says, you need Faith like a mustard seed, okay? That's a mustard seed. Okay. Not a whole whale of a lot of faith is what Jesus is saying. Um, the solution now starts to sound like the problem. The problem is little faith, and so the solution is itty-bitty, tiny 
bit of faith. Um, what is he saying? And this is where um, Dale Bruner gives us some good guidance. He says, a good rule in interpreting the Gospels, these four biographies, is that when at first you don't succeed, try another Gospel. Okay? That's, that's what he suggests. And so, again, Mark expounds on the explanation of their failure in a way that's different from Matthew, but entirely complementary. Mark explains it this way. When he'd entered the house, his disciples came to Jesus privately. Why could we not cast it out? Right? Same question, different answer. Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. It's a different answer, isn't it? Um, Again, listen to Dale Bruner. He says, Mark heard Jesus say that the solution is prayer. Matthew heard Jesus say that it's faith. Is there any difference? Not much, he says. Perhaps mustard seed faith is simply praying faith. Faith is the inside and prayer the outside of a single thing. Thus, a little faith like a grain of mustard seed is simply faith that has said its prayers. Faith and prayer are also united by the fact, and this is important, that neither trusts in its own competence. Both faith and prayer are characterized by openness towards God. So he says, why were the nine disciples unable to help the father and the possessed son? Because they did not have the little mustard seed faith that moved them to prayer. He says, prayerlessness is powerlessness. I think he might be spot on with this. I think it may not be the whole explanation, but it gets right at the heart of bringing these two seemingly different explanations together. And they answer, excuse me, the question of the day, why couldn't the disciples help the Father and the Son? Because their faith was little faith, in the sense that what D.A. Carson calls it poor faith. Um, I would call it misdirected faith. See, Matthew uses little faith to describe the disciples on a number of occasions. Each time, it seems to have to do with them misunderstanding who Jesus is and not trusting Him, right? They're out in a storm on the sea, they get terrified. Jesus is in the boat with them, they get terrified. You have little faith. They need bread. They don't have bread. What are they going to do for bread? They forget who Jesus is. Little faith. Famously, Peter is out walking on the water, right? He's trusting Jesus. All of a sudden, he looks away from Jesus. He looks at the waves. Oh, you have little faith, Peter, when he starts to sink. It seems to have to do with looking away from Jesus and trusting in our own inadequate resources. I think it's entirely possible that the disciples tried to cast out this demon based on their training and their experience and their giftedness and their authority given them by God, but not by prayer. As crazy as that sounds, Grant Osborne in his commentary says the problem was not so much the amount of their faith as it was the object of their faith if they were in fact prayerless, which Jesus indicates. That sound crazy? Try to cast out a demon without prayer? 
Who would do that? Okay? We would never do anything like that. We would never do anything important without prayer, would we? We'd never do that. Where'd they get these disciples? What a bunch of bums. I mean, we would never walk into an important meeting at work without prayer, okay? We would never discipline, have an important disciplinary session with our kids without prayer. Hey, who would think of coming to church without preparing their heart in prayer? What? These disciples, I can't, I can't relate to them. Okay? If you haven't figured it out yet, where are the disciples? Okay? We're the nine guys down on the hill trying to do stuff without prayer. Maybe we're down the hill because we wouldn't go up the hill in the first place to pray with Jesus. Okay? Does little faith, prayerless faith, mark large quantities of your day? Do you do stuff all day long without prayer? It's a fascinating st study that the Pew Forum did. <clears throat> they did it with Gen Xers and uh, baby boomers. Gen Xers born between 63 and 1980. They asked them when they were in their 20s, um, how many of you prayed daily? 42% of them prayed daily. They asked them about 10, 12 years later when they're in their 30s, and that percentage jumps up to 54%. Get a little older, pray a little more. They did it with baby boomers. Now, that's the generation, those of us who are ahead of the Gen Xers. I like to think of us as being ahead of the Gen Xers. Um, and they said in the, in the early 80s, and when, when my generation is in their 20s and 30s, um, how, how many of you pray daily? 47%. And then they asked them about 10, 15 years later. Actually, I think this one's about 25 years later. So we're in our 50s, maybe even 60s now. And it's up to 62% are praying daily. Get older, pray more, because you realize how little you bring to the table. So, <clears throat> I don't know what generation you are, but we've got a lot of young folk in our congregation. You haven't, you haven't hit the 30 barrier yet, okay? Hey, learn from us, okay? We're going bald because we've been beating our head against the wall for, for years without praying. You need God. You should pray every day. Every single day, everything you do, you ought to be praying about. Don't do what we did, okay? Thinking that our training, our, our gifts, our commission was somehow enough. And so we just jump into a counseling session, or we just launch into a sermon, or we just launch into a class, or whatever, Parenting, work, without prayer. Okay. You don't need this amazing mountain of flawless faith. Okay. It's not what Jesus is calling us to. You just need that little tiny seed, just enough to make you realize you need to cry out to Jesus. And, and in our story, the hero of this is the Father. And again, listen to Mark. He fills in some gaps for us. Uh, Jesus asked the father, Mark chapter 9, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, oh, from childhood. And it's often cast him into the fire and into water, this demon, to, 
to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately, immediately, the father of the child cries out and says, I believe. Help my unbelief. Okay. That's mustard seed faith. Okay. That's all it is. It's enough to turn you away from your resources to the resources of Jesus. It's faith that pleads with Jesus to come down and do what we cannot do for ourselves, to heal a suffering boy, to cast out a demon, to run a wise meeting, to make it to school safely, to discipline a child lovingly, to work, with, to work out without vanity, to shop sanely, to worship God rightly with His people. Okay. All those things need to be prayed about. By the way, just as an aside, you'd be stunned how much better my preaching is if you pray before you come. Okay. I'm like John Piper when, when you pray. Okay? I'm better, and you're way better, okay, when you pray before you come. Not perfect faith. Just mustard, just, just that little mustard seed of it that says, I believe. Help my unbelief. Where do you get faith like that? Okay. Um, a mustard seed faith that prays and trusts Jesus to help in your time of need. Let me suggest three pieces that can be helpful in, in embracing that kind of faith. Um, first, recognize your need, okay? like the dad. Okay. It doesn't have to be life and death. It's everywhere. In every situation, you're in over your head. You can't pull it off unless the mercy of God keeps your heart a-beating, keeps your lungs a-breathing, <clears throat> keeps your brain firing. You can't do it. You need God. You can't tie your shoes without God. Okay? That's, that's how pitiful we are. We need God. Um, Abraham Lincoln, I love this quote, he famously wrote one time, he says, I've been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. He said, my wisdom, notice first he says, my wisdom and that of all about me seemed insufficient for the day. Prayer is the acknowledgement of our great need. Are you aware of your great need? You can't make it through tomorrow. You can't make it to tomorrow without God. Okay. Start there. Okay. You need God. Start there. That's the first thing. Second thing is related to what we talked about last week up on that mountaintop. Remember why they went up there? They went up there to pray with Jesus. And you remember what the voice said? Here's my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. You really ought to listen to Him. And we talked about taking time set aside to open the Word and to pray and to listen to Jesus. Grasping who Jesus is will greatly increase your desire to pray to Him. The guy speaks and demons flee. I want that guy helping me with my day. 
Know your inability, know his ability in the situations that you're facing. A third thing is kind of a just do it approach, but I think it really helps. And that I would say is the intentional insertion of prayer pauses in your day. An example of what I'm talking about, though not related to prayer, comes from the medical profession. Uh, A surgeon named Atul Gawande wrote a book called The Checklist Manifesto. And in that, he shows how doctors can use checklists to save lives, reduce mistakes, especially during surgery. And um, his surgery checklist includes the following three pause points. Before anesthesia, before incision, and before leaving the operating room. Each pause point <clears throat> excuse me, is designed to last no more than a minute, just long enough for members of the team to make basic checks. For instance, confirm the patient's identity at the beginning. That's a, that's a good thing. It's a good thing, right, guy? Okay, let's ne- step two. And then at the end, count sponges and needles. Another really good thing. It says, it might not seem like pausing for a few minutes would make a difference, but the results are striking. Even short pause points before the incision helps to slow down the tempo of a surgical procedure, and that slower tempo leads to better outcomes. For example, starting in the spring of 2008, eight hospitals began using Gawande's checklist. Within months, the rate of major complications for surgical patients had fallen by 36%. 36%. It gets better. Deaths fell 47%. This is good stuff. It's a good idea. Checklists work because they impose delay, the article says. They add a speed bump before an important task so people stop and think about what they're about to do. No wonder then that Gawande also urges other professions, airline pilots, financial professionals, for instance, to use pause points for their jobs. Matt Woodley, he's an author and a pastor, he applies them to our vocation, to being Jesus followers. This is what he says, it's a good idea for every follower of Jesus Christ Developing pause points throughout the day before an important task or a crucial conversation, for instance, doesn't just add a speed bump. It can also be a simple spiritual discipline that trains us to seek God's perspective and ask for His help in every situation. Where could you insert prayer pauses in your day? Where could you do that where it might make a difference? Fascinating story is a lady named Emma Daniel Gray. She died back in 2009 at the age of 95. Okay. Now, there, there was a big story about her in the Washington Post because for 24 years, she's the woman who cleaned the office of the President of the United States. She served six presidents till she retired in 1979. But uh, the article says... what. Well, What makes it more interesting is that Mrs. Gray was a devout Christian and she would stand and pray over the president's chair each time she dusted it. Cleaning supplies in one hand, the other on the chair. And she'd pray for blessings, wisdom, and safety. Are there daily rhythms that you can insert prayer into? You can pause and insert prayer into You know, we already do it already when we pray at meals, okay? 
What about when you clean a child's room? Or, or make a bed? Or do laundry? Or change a diaper? What a great way to redeem diaper changing. Prayer. Insert prayer. What about when you enter a meeting room? Or a classroom? Or a locker room? Don't miss what Jesus promises here for a faith that prays. He says, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing, nothing will be impossible for you. This is, that's a pretty stunning promise. Little tiny bit of faith, great big mountain, move. Nothing will be impossible. It's not that we can ask for anything we want and it will come to pass. This makes God a genie. And it also gives 16-year-olds Maseratis. That's not how it works. Okay? D.A. Carson points out that this amazing promise is not limited by their little faith, that little mustard seed faith so much, more so by the context of what Jesus is talking about. It's about the accomplishment of the works of the kingdom for which they've been given authority. Jesus' intent is to strengthen their faith such that they will not trust in their own resources but will trust in God by prayer and the kingdom will advance unbelievably in lives that we never thought would be open to the gospel. They will be. People who we never thought could get free from that snare, they will be. But we need to move along just a little bit. Um, we're going to try to finish the rest of 17 today. So you're going to notice something uh, when you go to look at verse 20 and you go to look for verse 21. It's not in your Bible. It's not a typo. Verse 21 um, used to be included in the older versions of the English Bible. Um, if you're using the King James, you got verse 21. If you're not, you don't. And that's because as scholars begin to work incredibly closely with the biblical text to make sure that we have the very best biblical text. The best ancient manuscripts don't have this verse. Okay. Now the verse simply says something to the effect that this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. It should sound really familiar to you. It comes from Mark. Um, and so the fact that it's left out here probably wasn't here. It doesn't significantly change the insights we get from this text at all. Um, and these kind of things are really very rare. We're in chapter 17 of Matthew. You haven't heard me address even one of these matters up until now. None of them are of significant enough consequence um, to do that. But our scholars are working really, really hard to research the English Bible that you hold in your hands to make sure that it is absolutely accurate. Okay. Uh, trust your English Bible. Okay. Don't let these little kinds of things... Uh, jar that at all, okay? And you can, as you just think carefully through that, I think you'll track with me really well on that. Verse 22. So they're gathering in Galilee. Jesus says to them, Son of man's about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. 
and they were, the disciples were greatly distressed. Jesus is clearly predicting his death and resurrection. He's now a good six months or more away from the cross, and he knows it's coming. He's sure of it. He's prophesying about it. He's predicting it. He will be delivered into the hands of men. Who's going to deliver him into the hands of men? God's going to deliver him into the hands of men. This is God's plan from, from long ago unfolding. It's the story of the Bible coming to its apex. Even though Jesus is frustrated with the people that he's surrounded by, make no mistake about it, he's not wavering in his mission of love for those very same people. He is irrevocably headed towards Jerusalem to die and be raised again. But you get the impression that the disciples don't even hear that part about the resurrection or else they don't have a category for it. Now, they had seen Jesus raise people from the dead. There was a little girl back in Matthew 9 that he raised up. But still, the resurrection made no sense to the disciples until it happened. And even then, it took a bunch of women to convince them. They just don't have a category for this. And who could blame them? There's one more brief incident that closes out our passage for today. And we'll look at it. They went on up to Capernaum. And the collectors of the two drachma tax, a tax for the temple, went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? Peter said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. This tax was for the purpose of, of paying for the, the temple expenses. And um, it's a symbol of piety in their culture, um, of spiritual earnestness. It goes alongside things like Sabbath worship in the synagogue, um, pilgrimages to Jerusalem. To not pay this tax would have been a sign and a statement of godlessness. Okay? But Peter then naturally assumes that his master is going to pay this tax, okay? That he'll demonstrate evidence of his spirituality by doing this good thing. And Jesus points out by way of a question to Peter that they don't have to pay this temple tax anymore. Kings, he says to Peter, do not tax their own children. They tax their subjects. So the children are free. They don't have to pay the tax children of the king. And so as the very son of God, Jesus surely is exempt from this, as are the disciples as sons of God derivatively. They need not fund the temple with their taxes because guess what's coming? New temple. Jesus just predicted it, his death and resurrection. It's now the only place where God forgives sins and offers fellowship with himself, the death and resurrection of his son, not a physical temple. This would be symbolized when Jesus dies. You remember that there's a veil, a curtain in the temple gets ripped in two. That's pointing back to what Jesus is talking about here. Upon his death and resurrection, Jesus would be the new temple of God, the only divinely authorized meeting place between God and man. But Jesus then does something most interesting. He says, we don't have to pay this tax. However, he says, so as not to give offense to these people, 
go to the sea, Peter, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel, a coin, just enough to pay two people's tax. Take that, give it to them for, for me and for yourself. So, while they don't have to pay the tax, Jesus chooses to in a really curiously miraculous fashion. This shows the extent of Jesus' lordship over fish, okay? A fish. If you're a fisherman, you appreciate what Jesus is doing here. This is a miracle, okay? So he, he demonstrates his lordship over creation with this, but it's done in order not to offend. And offend here is where we, we get our words scandalize, um, cause somebody to stumble, to drive someone from the faith. Jesus says, I don't have to pay this tax, I'll pay it so that I will not be a stumbling block to these people from faith in me. Paul picks up on this same idea and applies it uh, to the church when he says in Romans 14, let's not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. He's drawing on Jesus' teaching. For if your brothers grieve by what you eat, the issue was food in Paul's case, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. It's a good lesson for Peter and for us of the priority of love and the gospel over our personal rights and freedoms. So what have we learned today? Some of you guys are paying really close attention, and you have learned you want to pray before you fish. Because this, <laughs> this is... This is amazing. Okay. I wouldn't say that's necessarily a horrible application, but I hope it's not the main one that you come with. <clears throat> this guy can fish, and he can cast out demons, and he can heal little boys. Nobody else can heal, and he can teach disciples like nobody's business. And he's willing to lay down his rights. He's willing to lay down his life so that people will believe in him. And he patiently invites you to pray and watch and see what he will do with just, just a little mustard seed of faith. We need to let our little faith bring the power of Jesus into our days by means of our prayers in all things that we face. Peter Kreeft wrote a book called a Prayer for Beginners, and he says, prayer's easier than we think. We want to think it's too hard or too high or holy for us because that gives us an excuse for not doing it. He says, this is false humility. We can all do it, even the most sinful, shallow, silly, and stupid of us. He says, you do not have to master some mystical method. You do not have to master a method at all. Can you talk to a friend? then you can talk to God, for He is your friend. And that is what prayer is. The single most important piece of advice about prayer is one word, begin. God makes it easy. Just do it. And so what we'd like to do um, as the worship team comes to lead us in a time of response, um, give you an opportunity to have, have us pray for you about your prayers. We're going to pray for you about your praying today. So if you sense... God calling you to demonstrate your faith in prayer. 
more fully than you are now. During the course of the song we're going to sing, we're going to sing the same song they led us in at the offering. When we sing that song, um, we're going to take a little break in it, and I'll invite those of you who want prayer to come down, and we'll pray for the whole lot of us that want prayer about this at one time. So if God's prompting you, be sensitive to that as we sing in worship, and then we'll give you a chance to come down to the front here for prayer. So let's stand, and let's declare our faith together in Jesus, our Savior.